to the Underclass Podcast with Austin Picard. I'm an independent researcher who can't stomach being lied to on a daily basis by the mainstream media. While we live in a fracturing society, launched into parallel realities, falling perfectly onto the two sides of the political spectrum, I remain in the underclass. Mass education or mass indoctrination. The 19th century factory model education system, known as the Prussian model, is the model for education widely adopted in many modern nations, including the United States. This model of free and compulsory education was actually a state-oriented nation-building tactic with the goal of cultivating a system of mass indoctrination to maintain social order. In this context, a mass education system designed to teach obedience can become an attractive policy tool to prevent future rebellion and promote long-term order. The basic foundations of the Prussian primary education system were laid out by Prussian King Frederick the Great in a decree of 1763, and by all accounts, the German states in the 19th century were world leaders in prestigious education, with Prussia setting the pace. German-American pioneers reported that the political motivations of the Prussian king were to replace the controlling functions of the local aristocracy using the Prussian court to instill social obedience in the citizens through indoctrination. Every individual had to become convinced, in the core of his being, that the king was just, his decisions always right, and the need for obedience paramount. The schools quickly imposed an official language to the prejudice of ethnic groups living in Prussia. The purpose of the system was to instill loyalty to the crown and to train young men for the military and the bureaucracy. As the German philosopher Johann Gottlieb Fichte, a key influence on the system, said, the schools must fashion the person and fashion him in such a way that he simply cannot will otherwise than what you wish him to will. According to an article published by the American Sociological Association, the Prussian reforms in education spread quickly through Europe, particularly after the French Revolution. The Napoleonic Wars first allowed the system to be enhanced after the 1806 crushing defeat of Prussia itself, and then to spread in parallel with the rise in territorial gains of Prussia after the Vienna Congress. The Journal of American Educational History claims that American educators were fascinated by German educational trends. In 1818, John Griscom gave a favorable report of Prussian education. English translations were made of French philosopher Victor Cousin's work, Report on the State of Public Education in Prussia. Calvin E. Stowe, Henry Barnard, Horace Mann, George Bancroft, and Joseph Cogswell all had a vigorous interest in German education. In 1843, Mann traveled to Germany to investigate how the educational process worked. Upon his return to the United States, he lobbied heavily to have the Prussian model adopted. Horace Mann was an educational reformer and congressman as a member of the U.S. House of Representatives, who was one of the major advocates of the common school movement, 
even becoming the first ever Secretary of the State Board of Education. He is known as the father of American education, who convinced his fellow modernizers, especially those in the Whig Party, to legislate tax-supported elementary public education in their states. Indeed, most northern states adopted one version or another of the system he established in Massachusetts, especially the program for normal schools to train professional teachers. In 1852, Mann was instrumental in the decision to adopt the Prussian education system in Massachusetts. Soon, New York State set up the same method in 12 different schools on a trial basis. Horace Mann once revealed the prevailing mindset behind his cradle-to-grave totalitarian ideology by confessing his belief that the state is the father of children. American educator and author John Taylor Gatto wrote in his book, The Underground History of American Education, describing the mentality behind the Prussian model. The Prussian mind, which carried the day, held a clear idea of what centralized schooling should deliver. Obedient soldiers to the army, obedient workers for mines, factories, and farms, well-subordinated civil servants trained in their function, well-subordinated clerks for industry, citizens who thought alike on most issues, national uniformity in thought, word, and deed. The area of individual volition for commoners was severely foreclosed by Prussian psychological training procedures drawn from the experience of animal husbandry and equestrian training and also taken from past military experience. Thomas Alexander was a professor of elementary education at the George Peabody College for Teachers and published a book in 1918 titled The Prussian Elementary Schools, in which he wrote the following. We believe, however, that a careful study of the Prussian school system will convince any unbiased reader that the Prussian citizen cannot be free to do and act for himself, that the Prussian is to a large measure enslaved through the medium of his school, that his learning, instead of making him his own master, forges the chain by which he is held in servitude, that the whole scheme of Prussian elementary education is shaped with the express purpose of making 95 out of every 100 citizens subservient to the ruling house and to the state. Mass state-oriented compulsory education is clearly used as a vehicle for political elites to instill blind allegiance, broadly facilitating behavioral obedience and respect for authority that will consequently reduce the future probability of mass rebellion against the established order. This week, we peel back the dark agenda of dehumanization, pointing out the internalized oppression inspired by a Malthusian form of incitement to genocide. Tales of forced compulsory sterilization, flawed principles of selective breeding, genetic engineering, scientific racism, and common misconceptions of the manufactured myth of overpopulation. Today we find out why so many of the defendants at the Nuremberg trials in 1945 attempted to justify their human rights abuses 
by claiming that there was little difference, if any, between the Nazi eugenics programs and the American eugenics programs that had originally inspired the methods deployed by the Third Reich. The ethical implications of the history of eugenics are truly inconceivable, yet the moral imperative remains. So we stay the course, in defense of the subjugated swaths of underclass, who were classified as defectives and labeled as unfit, only to be subsequently segregated, institutionalized, sterilized, tortured, and even murdered. Citing an article written and published at Medium.com in his 1798 book, An Essay on the Principle of Population, Reverend Thomas Robert Malthus observed that a nation's food production increased arithmetically, but population growth increased geometrically. Reverend Malthus postulated that there would be a point when the population growth would outstrip food production. This has since been known as the Malthusian trap, in that populations had a tendency to grow until the lower class suffered hardship, want, and greater susceptibility to famine and disease. Malthus' essay is one of the most pivotal that Charles Darwin would read, subsequently leading him to conceive the very theory of evolution used as a fundamental keystone of modern biological theory. Because there was a constant battle between populations of species for survival, he deduced that those which have advantageous genes will be selected naturally, as the disadvantaged will die out or go extinct. Our dear reverend solution was dark, even for the 16th century. His proposal was that they simply exterminate the poor as a form of eugenics. He wrote, Instead of recommending cleanliness to the poor, we should encourage contrary habits. In our towns, we should make the streets narrower, crowd more people into the houses, and court the return of the plague. In the country, we should build our villages near stagnant pools and particularly encourage settlements in all marshy and unwholesome situations. But above all, we should reprobate specific remedies for ravaging diseases and those benevolent but many mistaken men who have thought they were doing a service to mankind by projecting schemes for the total extirpation of particular disorders. The British government clearly seemed to have a Malthusian view of the Irish potato famine of the 1840s, and in the words of Assistant Secretary to the Treasury Charles Trevelyan, it was an effective mechanism for reducing the surplus population. The British government has explored Malthusian thinking by restricting the poor and discouraging children among the poor as to prevent overpopulation. It had been thought of as a means of social engineering and eugenics in developing countries who always suspected that the more developed countries had an ulterior motive, especially when giving free vaccines. Since the forced sterilization of the middle of the last century by the Nazis and the U.S. government, culminating in the 1927 Supreme Court case Buck v. Bell, in which the justices legalized the sterilization of undesirable citizens. The result? More than 70,000 U.S. citizens would be forcibly sterilized. Hence, especially in advanced countries of the world, 
state population control is often regarded as immoral. China's one-child policy will have long-term effects. The population is skewed towards males, and there have been significant increases in the number of abortions and sterilizations. Even after the policy was rescinded, China's birth and fertility rates remained extremely low, leaving the country with a rapidly aging population and a shrinking workforce similar to Japan. The predictions of Malthus never came true. He would be surprised that almost 200 years later, the world's population is much larger and for the most part better off. There have been famines, but they have had more to do with local conditions and politics than with the inability of Earth's resources to support the population. Malthus did not foresee that substantial industrial and technological advancements would lead to the creation of valuable tools, such as pesticides, capable machinery, refrigeration, and other technical advances, making it possible to feed enormous numbers of people. Except in cases influenced by war and political repression, Starvation is rarely a widespread problem these days. In advanced nations, obesity is a far greater threat to health than starvation. Life expectancy in the developed countries has nearly doubled from 40 years in the 18th century to well over 70 years. According to the Population Research Institute, the myth of overpopulation is an unfounded belief that the number of people on Earth will exceed the carrying capacity of the planet in the foreseeable future, leading to economic or social collapse, and that actions ought to be taken to curb population growth. Population alarmists, who buy into the overpopulation myth, believe that the world's growing population will strip the Earth of its usable resources and will outpace innovation and rates of production. This, they believe, will cause diminishing standards of living, more poverty, more hunger, famine and starvation, water shortages, pestilence, war and conflict over diminishing resources, the evisceration of wildlife habitats and environmental catastrophes otherwise known as global climate change. Malthus falsely believed that population checks were necessary to prevent the proliferation of poverty and to prevent catastrophic war famine and epidemics caused by overpopulation, a phenomenon known as Malthusian catastrophe. Subsequent editions of Malthus's essay were widely read among the upper classes in Europe, many of whom bought into the false belief that high birth rates among the poor would overwhelm Western society and lead to war, famine, and poverty. Malthus's idea quickly became the foundation for a movement they began to preach population control and contraception as the keys to socioeconomic development and the betterment of Western society. Although Malthus himself generally opposed on religious grounds the use of birth control and abortion as methods of population control, his followers, the Neo-Malthusians, had no such concerns. Neo-Malthusianism became the first movement in the Western world to publicly advocate for practicing birth control, a practice at that time still widely condemned by society as obscene and immoral. What was the effect of Malthus' theory? His ideas on population selection inspired Charles Darwin to formulate his theory of evolution 
and were highly influential on Francis Galton in the field of eugenics. Neo-Malthusian theories on overpopulation and population control endured into the 20th and 21st centuries and were foundational for the population control and radical environmentalist movements of the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. U.S. and U.N. foreign aid policies and structures still in place today were largely put into place during the 1960s and 70s and influenced by neo-Malthusian theories, placing a heavy emphasis on reducing population growth in the developing world as a principal aim of foreign development assistance. By the early 20th century, social Darwinism and eugenics was all the rage, and population control was primarily advocated as a way to improve the gene pool and to weed out undesirables, primarily through sterilization. Social Darwinism was frequently mixed with pseudoscience, racism, and hypernationalism, a toxic concoction which was later extended to its full brutal scale by the Nazi party in Germany during the Holocaust in their attempt to create a master race. Citing an article published in the San Francisco Gate in November 2003, even the U.S. Supreme Court endorsed aspects of eugenics. In its infamous 1927 decision, Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote, It is better for all the world if instead of waiting to execute degenerate offspring for crime or to let them starve for their imbecility, society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. Three generations of imbeciles are enough. This decision opened the floodgates for thousands to be coercively sterilized or otherwise persecuted as subhuman. Years later, the Nazis at the Nuremberg trials quoted Holmes' words in their own defense. Comprehensive breakdown of the theory of eugenics can be found in the 2007 documentary film titled Endgame, Blueprint for Global Enslavement, providing a valuable outline for this Malthusian agenda. Darwin's cousin, Francis Galton, credited as the father of eugenics, saw an opportunity to advance mankind by taking the reins of Darwin's evolution theory and applied social principles to develop social Darwinism. The families, Darwin, Galton, Huxley, and Wedgwood were so obsessed with their new social design theory that they pledged their families would only breed with each other. They falsely predicted that within only a few generations, they would produce supermen. The emerging pseudoscience was only codifying the practice of inbreeding, already popular within elites for millennia. The four families experiment was a disaster. Within only two generations of inbreeding, close to 90% of their offspring either died at birth or were seriously mentally or physically handicapped. The moneyed class of the planet, and particularly the royal families of the world, who were already obsessed with breeding and filled with a predatory disdain for the underclass, seized on the new science and began aggressively enforcing its aims worldwide. Biometrics appears to be a new science, but it was actually developed by Galton back in the 1870s as a way to track racial traits and genetic histories, and as a way to decide who would be licensed to breed. 
1904, the Cold Springs Harbor Research Facility was started in the United States by eugenicist Charles Davenport with the funding of prominent robber barons Carnegie, Rockefeller, and Harriman. In 1907, the first sterilization laws were passed in the United States. Citizens with mild deformities or low test scores on their report cards were arrested and forcibly sterilized. In 1910, the U.S. Eugenics Record Office was set up. By then, the British had created the first network of social workers expressly to serve as spies and enforcers of the eugenics race cult that was rapidly taking control of Western society. The social workers would decide who would have their children taken away, who would be sterilized, and in some cases, who would be quietly murdered. In 1911, the Rockefeller family exports eugenics to Germany by bankrolling the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute, which later would form a central pillar in the Third Reich. At the 1912 International Eugenics Conference in London, eugenics becomes an international craze and gains superstar status. The futurist and best-selling sci-fi author H.G. Wells had studied biology under top eugenicist and was spreading the new faith worldwide. In 1916, H.G. Wells' lover, Margaret Sanger, starts her promotion of eugenics in the United States. In 1923, Sanger receives massive funding from the Rockefeller family. Sanger wrote to fellow eugenicist Clarence J. Gamble that black leaders would need to be recruited to act as front men in sterilization programs directed against black communities. In 1924, Hitler pins Mein Kampf or My Struggle and credits U.S. eugenicist as his inspiration. Hitler even wrote a fan letter to American eugenicist and conservationist Madison Grant, calling his race-based book, The Passing of the Great Race, his Bible. Hitler developed the plan for mass extermination of the Jews and what he called other sub-races, as well as the handicapped from Grant. By 1927, eugenics hit the mainstream. The so-called science was aggressively pushed through contests at schools, churches and at state fairs. Churches competed in contests with big cash prizes to see who could best implement eugenics into their sermons. Major denominations then tell Americans that Jesus is for eugenics. That same year in the United States, more than 25 states passed forced sterilization laws and the Supreme Court ruled in favor of brutal sterilization policies. When Hitler came to power in 1933, one of his first acts was to pass national eugenics laws modeled after laws in the United States. By 1936, Germany had become the world leader in eugenics for taking effective actions to sterilize and euthanize hundreds of thousands of victims. The big three of American eugenics, Davenport, Laughlin, and Goethe, were dispatched by the Rockefellers to Germany, where they advised the Nazis on the fine-tuning of their extermination system. With the strong support of the U.S. and England, Germany had gone over the edge. 
and tens of millions would pay with their lives. At the end of the war, the Allies protected from prosecution the very Nazi scientist that had tortured thousands of people to death. The Nazi brand of eugenics had embarrassed the elites, but they had no intention of stopping their plans. The Allies literally fought with each other over who would get top Nazi eugenicist. It didn't matter if the SS doctors had tortured tens of thousands to death. They were free to go. The Angel of Death, Joseph Mengele, and his boss, Otmar von Verscher, were not prosecuted, and von Verscher even continued his work in Germany after the war. Eugenicists were angry that their great work had been exposed. They then scrambled to camouflage their agenda. Eugenics Quarterly became Social Biology. The American Birth Control League became Planned Parenthood. New terms like transhumanism, population control, sustainability, conservation, and environmentalism replaced racial hygiene and social Darwinism. Many eugenicists of the previous period engaged in what they called crypto-eugenics. Purposefully taking their eugenics beliefs underground, they became highly respected anthropologists, biologists, and geneticists in the post-war world. A History of Forced Sterilization in the United States, written by Alexandra Mina Stern and published in National Interest, claims that more than 60,000 people were sterilized in 32 states during the 20th century, based on the bogus science of eugenics, a term coined by Francis Galton in 1883. Indiana passed the world's first compulsory sterilization law in 1907. 31 states followed suit. State-sanctioned sterilizations reached their peak in the 1930s and 40s, but continued and in some states rose during the 1950s and 60s. The United States was an international leader in eugenics. Its sterilization laws actually informed Nazi Germany. The Third Reich's 1933 Law for the Prevention of Offspring with Hereditary Diseases was modeled on laws in Indiana and California. Under this law, the Nazis sterilized approximately 400,000 children and adults, mostly Jews and other undesirables labeled defective. At first, sterilization programs targeted white men, expanding by the 1920s to affect the same number of women as men. The laws used broad and ever-changing disability labels like feeble-mindedness and mental defective. Over time, women and racial minorities increasingly became the target, as eugenics amplified sexism and racism. It is no coincidence that sterilization rates for black women rose as desegregation got underway. In North Carolina, which sterilized the third highest number of people in the United States, 7,600 people from 1930 to 1970. Women vastly outnumbered men, and black women were disproportionately sterilized. Preliminary analysis shows that from 1950 to 1966, black women were sterilized at more than three times the rate of white women 
and more than 12 times the rate of white men. This pattern reflected the ideas that black women were not capable of being good parents and poverty should be managed with reproductive constraint. After the eugenics movement was well established in the United States, it spread to Germany. California eugenicists began producing literature promoting eugenics and sterilization and sending it overseas to German scientists and medical professionals. By 1933, California had subjected more people to forceful sterilization than all other U.S. states combined, and the forced sterilization program engineered by the Nazis was partly inspired by California's program. The Oxford University Press even claims that the Rockefeller Foundation helped to develop and fund the various German eugenics programs, including the one that Joseph Mengele worked in before he went to Auschwitz. Upon returning from Germany in 1934, where more than 5,000 people per month were being forcibly sterilized, the California eugenics leader C.M. Guta bragged to a colleague, You will be interested to know that your work has played a powerful part in shaping the opinions of the group of intellectuals who are behind Hitler in this epoch-making program. Everywhere I sensed that their opinions have been tremendously stimulated by American thought. I want you, my dear friend, to carry this thought with you for the rest of your life, that you have really jolted into action a great government of 60 million people. One of the most active individuals influencing American eugenics policy, especially compulsory sterilization legislation, was Harry H. Laughlin who often bragged that his model eugenic sterilization laws had been implemented in the 1935 Nuremberg racial hygiene laws and in the book Three Generations No Imbeciles, authored by Paul Lombardo and published by Johns Hopkins University Press, he writes, In 1936, Laughlin was invited to an award ceremony at Heidelberg University in Germany conveniently scheduled on the anniversary of the 1934 purge of Jews from the Heidelberg faculty, to receive an honorary doctorate for his work on the science of racial cleansing. Due to financial limitations, Laughlin was unable to attend the ceremony and had to pick up his award from the Rockefeller Institute. Afterward, he proudly shared the award with his colleagues, remarking, that he felt that it symbolized the common understanding of German and American scientists of the nature of eugenics. Margaret Sanger was an outspoken racist eugenicist who held deep disdain for the underclass. She has become a political icon in more ways than one, often heralded as a heroine of women's reproductive rights by left-wing political ideologues and she remains an admired figure in the movement to this day. However, this movement seems to strategically ignore the cruel and inhumane reality of the beliefs practiced by their paragon of reproductive rights, and never seem to grapple with the barbaric track record of the organizations that evolved into the Planned Parenthood Federation of America. Manipulative propaganda, generated for the sole purpose of blindly defending an institution that actively practices compulsory sterilization techniques using publications such as the Scientific American 
as a vehicle to distribute inflammatory headlines such as political attacks on Planned Parenthood or a threat to women's health, subtly encouraging the partisan divide while simultaneously misrepresenting the very organization used to target the middle and lower class. Let's consider Margaret Sanger's own words in an article titled A Better Race Through Birth Control. She wrote, Given birth control, the unfit will voluntarily eliminate their kind. Sanger popularized the term birth control and opened the first birth control clinic in the United States on October 16, 1916. The Journal of American Physicians and Surgeons claims that early proponents of the eugenics movement included not only influential white Americans, but also several proponent African-American intellectuals, such as W.E.B. Du Bois, Thomas Wyatt Turner, and many academics at Tuskegee University, Howard University, and Hampton University. The Indiana University Press even reported that Du Bois stated that he believed only fit blacks should procreate to eradicate the race's heritage of moral iniquity. And according to the Eugenics Record Office, with the support of leaders like Du Bois, efforts were made in the early 20th century to control the reproduction of the country's black population. One of the most visible initiatives was none other than Margaret Sanger's 1939 proposal they called the Negro Project. That year, Sanger, Florence Rose, her assistant, and Mary Woodard Reinert, then secretary of the New Birth Control Federation of America, drafted a report called Birth Control and the Negro. In this report, they stated that African Americans were the group with the greatest economic health and social problems, were largely illiterate and still breed carelessly and disastrously, a line taken from W.E.B. Du Bois's article in the June 1932 Birth Control Review. Sanger particularly sought out black ministers from the South to serve as leaders in the project in the hopes of countering any ideas that the project was a strategic attempt to eradicate the black population. Most of the controversy stems from a letter written the very same year the project was launched in 1939, in which Sanger wrote, We do not want word to go out that we want to exterminate the Negro population, and the minister is the man who can straighten out that idea if it ever occurs to any of their more rebellious members. In her autobiography published in 1938, she wrote, I accepted an invitation to talk to the women's branch of the Ku Klux Klan. I was escorted to the platform, was introduced, and began to speak. In the end, through simple illustrations, I believed I had accomplished my purpose. A dozen invitations to speak to similar groups were proffered. In 1934, Margaret Sanger wrote at length in a series of articles given the title, America Needs a Code for Babies, where she made several radical proclamations such as, a marriage license shall in itself give husband and wife only the right to a common household and not the right to parenthood. No woman shall have the legal right to bear a child, and no man shall have the right to become a father without a permit for parenthood. Permits for parenthood shall be issued upon application by city, county, or state authorities to married couples 
providing they meet certain mandatory qualifications. No permit for parenthood shall be valid for more than one birth. In January 1932, she wrote a paper calling to apply a stern and rigid policy of sterilization and segregation to that grade of population whose progeny is tainted or whose inheritance is such that objectionable traits may be transmitted to offspring. She claimed, these two words, birth control, sum up our whole philosophy. It means the release and cultivation of the better elements in our society and the gradual suppression, elimination, and eventual extinction of defective stocks, those human weeds which threaten the blooming of the finest flowers of American civilization. A website associated with the University of Pittsburgh issued a report claiming that the 20th century demarcated a time in which compulsory sterilization heavily navigated its way into primarily Latino communities against Latino women. Locations such as Puerto Rico and Los Angeles were found to have had large amounts of their female population coerced into sterilization procedures without quality and necessary informed consent, nor full awareness of the procedure. Between the span of the 1930s to the 1970s, nearly one-third of the female population in Puerto Rico was sterilized. At the time, this was the highest rate of sterilization in the world. Following legalization of the procedure in 1937, a U.S. government-endorsed initiative saw health department officials advocating for sterilization in rural parts of the island. Sterilized women were also encouraged to join the workforce, in particular the textile and clothing-related industries. This procedure was so common that it was often referred to solely as the operation. Contraceptive trials were inducted in the 1950s towards Puerto Rican women. These women were purposely ill-informed of the oral contraceptive's presence. The researchers only reported that the drug, which was administered at a much higher dosage than what birth control is prescribed at today, was to prevent pregnancy, not that it would render them irreversibly sterile or that they were tied to a clinical trial in order to jumpstart oral contraceptive access in America through FDA approval. This intentional targeting of Latino communities exemplifies the strategic placement of racial eugenics in modern history. This targeting is also inclusive of those with disabilities and those from marginalized populations, which Puerto Rico is not the only example of this trend. In California, by the year 1964, over 20,000 people were sterilized, making that the largest amount in all of the United States. California led the country in the number of sterilization procedures performed on men and women, often without their full knowledge and consent. Eugenics is clearly a high-minded form of depopulation, strictly benefiting the elite class and has been inextricably tied to the radical environmentalist movement for generations, once again framed perfectly in the aforementioned documentary film Endgame. In December of 1974, the U.S. government made third world population reduction a central national security issue. The operation plan titled National Security Study Memorandum 200 
was simply a regurgitation of the British Commission on Population, created by King George VI of England in 1944, which openly stated that populous third world nations posed a threat to the international elite's monopoly of global power. The Kissinger-authored U.S. plan targeted 13 key countries where massive population reduction was called for. Kissinger recommended that IMF and World Bank loans be given on condition that nations initiate aggressive population control programs, such as sterilization. Kissinger also recommended that food be used as a weapon, and that instigating wars was also a helpful tool in reducing population. In 1972, the Nixon White House also implemented a eugenics policy which was directed by George Herbert Walker Bush, then United States Ambassador to the United Nations. Bush advised China on the formulation of their one-child policy and directed the federal government to forcibly sterilize more than 40% of Native American women on reservations. The Bilderberg-dominated Club of Rome advocated environmentalism as the best front to implement population reduction. Western populations would accept serfdom if it was packaged as saving the earth. Industrialization of Africa, Asia, and Latin America could be blocked. Citizens would more willingly give up their national sovereignty if it were sold as a way to help the planet. The think tank also concocted the peak oil fraud as a way to create artificial scarcity. And the Club of Rome has been aggressively pushing a global carbon tax as a way to fund their planetary government. In the draft copy of the United Nations Global Biodiversity Assessment, it states very clearly that we must reduce the human population from what's current level of about six billion people down to about one billion people. In the 1970s, South Africa developed race-specific bioweapons target blacks and Asians and then subsequently sold the technology to Israel in the mid-1980s. In September of 2000, the Project for a New American Century published a document in which Dick Cheney described race-specific bioweapons as politically useful tools. And somebody mentioned, well, why would they want to reduce the human population when that means less money for them? Most people have no idea. They're not after money. They have all the money they need. They're after power. That's their aphrodisiac. The overlords of the New World Order are now aggressively pushing for a worldwide one-child policy. The Chinese one-child policy was phased in gradually. In the 60s, when it began, you only had to pay a tax penalty. Only later did they imprison you if you had more than one child. Now the exact same proposals to penalize couples who have more than one child are being made in the United States, England, and Europe. In the push to reduce global warming, children, according to some, are the new culprits. A think tank in the UK says too many kids are what's making the planet worse, saying large families, anything over two children really, should be frowned upon as an environmental no-no, uh, akin to not reusing your plastic bags, driving one of those big gas-guzzling cars, uh, taking long trips overseas. The UK, in fact, has negative growth. I think Canada's does too. That still, families in our rich countries shouldn't have more than two kids. Imagine 
the extraordinary degree of narcissism required for anyone to honestly believe their role in global society is to dictate who can and cannot procreate or reproduce. The untouchable apotheosis that has become Planned Parenthood, subsequently worshipped by self-proclaimed ideological progressives, is a corrupt and fraudulent institution, inherently immoral at the heart of its own foundational principles. The Jaffe Memo, named after Frederick Jaffe, who was in charge of the Planned Parenthood Population Control Division, was an infamous document produced by Planned Parenthood in 1969 and directly implicates the organization by exposing their true underlying intentions and conveying the lengths that elitists are willing to go to, quote, manage the U.S. population. Planned Parenthood deceptively portrays itself as an advocate for women's rights, autonomy, and sexual freedom. But the items listed in this document reveal the true story. How to reduce the population of the United States. Compulsory abortion of -of out-of-wedlock pregnancies. Compulsory sterilization of all who have two children, except for a few who would be allowed three. Compulsory education of children. Encourage increased homosexuality. Fertility control agents in the water supply. Induce chronic depression. And the discouragement of private home ownership. Not exactly consistent with the principles of autonomy or self-determination, Professor and medical historian Alex Stern wrote that the compulsory sterilization of American men and women continues to this day. In 2013, it was reported that 148 female prisoners in two California prisons were sterilized between 2006 and 2010 in a supposedly voluntary program, but it was determined that the prisoners did not give consent to the procedures. This mentality is all-pervasive, consuming the minds of the elite strata of society who have been consolidating power over global civilization for generations. Eugenics did not die with the Third Reich. It went underground to be rebranded and gradually reintegrated back into society under the deceptive guise of a collective, communal scientific agenda, strategically hidden behind the mask of progress and embraced by the very people with the targets on their backs. The ethical implications of the history of eugenics are truly inconceivable. Yet the moral imperative remains, so we stay the course, in defense of the subjugated swaths of underclass who were classified as defectives and labeled as unfit, only to be subsequently segregated, institutionalized, sterilized, tortured, and even murdered. This pursuit of omnipotent power will always be most appealing to the unethical hordes of narcissistic sociopaths uniformly and disproportionately represented in positions of government who always seem to share a common goal. This blind allegiance to the very institutions built to indoctrinate us into obedient conscripts must be extinguished. It's finally time. We dismantle these institutions designed to solely benefit this totalitarian cult 
of billionaires and bureaucrats. 